You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello again, everyone. We've come a long way, and we are now getting closer to the end of my argument for Christian Universalism but I saved my best argument for last. And ironically, it's an argument I wasn't even really intending to make when I started all of this. Because when I started all of this, what I was really wanting to do was just to let people know that Christian universalism is actually a perfectly fine way to be Christian. I wanted folks to know that this might just be the spirituality they've been looking for, or maybe the spirituality that's been looking for them. But maybe they just didn't know about it, or maybe they'd heard about it but didn't know if it was legitimate, if it was really Christian. And so what I was wanting to do, and what I'm still wanting to do, is just to say to them, yes, Christian universalism is legitimate, and it really is Christian. Good biblical arguments can be made for it, as good as any other theology out there, given that no theology is completely bulletproof. But good biblically grounded arguments for Christian universalism are definitely out there. And so that was basically what I was up to when I started down this road. Then the farther down this road I got, the more I began to realize that if I was going to get people to seriously consider Christian universalism, I was going to have to make my strongest argument. If I was going to be going against the grain, I really needed to bring my A-game. I needed not just to plead for acceptance for Christian universalism, I needed to show why I believe Christian universalism was actually a superior understanding of the faith. And so, while all theologies may argue their position from the Bible and from logic, I would like to here put forth the argument that Christian universalism is the only approach to Christianity which successfully defends the goodness of God. Or to put it another way, by way of analogy, Suppose there was a table, and at that table any theology could sit down that recognized that God is all-powerful and all-knowing. A lot of Christian theologies could sit at that table. The Calvinists could sit at that table because their God is all-knowing and all-powerful. The Arminian could also sit at that table because their God knows all and is all-powerful. And the Christian Universalists could sit at that table because their God is also all-knowing and all-powerful. But now say there was another table. And at this table, the only theologies allowed to sit down were the theologies where God is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good. Christian universalism, I will argue, is the only Christian theology that can sit at that table because it's the only Christian theology which I believe can successfully argue that God is in fact all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. Now, I know that's a strong argument, but remember I'm making my strongest argument because I want to make a place for Christian universalism as a perfectly fine and perfectly legitimate form of Christianity. And that's a bit of an uphill battle in this day and age. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying Christian universalism is the only way to be Christian. I'm just saying that Christian universalism is the only way to be Christian in which God is all good. And that's because it's only in Christian universalism that God completely draws the line at letting anything happen to one of God's children that finally can't be turned towards their own good and towards the good of all. 
Now, that doesn't mean God stops all evil from happening in this world. In fact, God may have to permit a great deal of evil to happen in order to give souls the room they need to really and truly develop. But in Christian universalism, God draws an important line. I like the way Christian philosopher Thomas Talbot draws this line. According to Talbot, quote, God draws the line at irreparable harm or harm that not even omnipotence could ever repair. That is, a supremely perfect creator would never permit irreparable harm to befall any of his own loved ones. And then Talbot goes on to add, let's resume the quote again, within the context of this assumption, it seems to me highly plausible that our earthly environment plays an important teaching role in helping to prepare billions of people for enduring happiness in the future. For insofar as God aims to teach the lessons of love and to do so without controlling our individual choices and without bypassing our own reasoning processes, he must allow us to discover for ourselves why a context of love and commitment to others is far superior to one in which we confusedly pursue our own perceived interests at the expense of others. He must allow, in other words, our own experience to provide compelling evidence concerning the best way to live and that surely requires a stable environment in which the natural consequences of our free actions, both the good ones and the bad ones, have the power to reveal the true nature of these actions. I like the way Talbot puts that. And I like how it is that in Christian universalism, everything ultimately works together towards a good end for everyone, and how God never allows any harm to befall any of God's children that God does not also know how to heal. And so when I put all of this together, I find myself logically compelled to conclude that if God is all-knowing and all-powerful, then the only way God can also be truly all-good is if God is also all-saving. Now, that's a strong conclusion, I know. As a matter of fact, it's such a strong conclusion, I initially started to back away from sharing it. I even wondered if I should include this conclusion in my book, Grace Saves All. But I finally decided, with the help of my wife Amy, that it was merited. In the introduction to my book, Grace Saves All, this is what I wrote. When I first conceived of this book, my purpose was mainly to increase awareness of and to make a case for Christian universalism. However, through the process of research and writing, it became increasingly clear to me that something much more was at stake. The core conviction I reached was that Christian universalism is not just one approach to Christian theology. It is the only approach to Christian theology which can successfully defend the goodness of God, and therein lies its necessity. As I will argue, it is not possible to successfully defend the goodness of an all-knowing and all-powerful God unless the salvation this all-knowing and all-powerful God achieves is not also all-inclusive in scope. And so, all of this is why the subtitle for my book is The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Not the acceptability of Christian Universalism, but the necessity of Christian Universalism. So, permit me to make my case about the necessity of Christian Universalism. First, let's think about the problem that non-universalist approaches to Christianity must face when it comes to the goodness of God. And, as you may have noticed, I'm assuming here an understanding of God that includes God being all-knowing and all-powerful, and that's just because a being who is not all-knowing and all-powerful doesn't seem very godlike to me. So, if we are imagining God this way, 
then if all are not saved, I think we've got a problem. Because how can we rationally hold together a concept of a God who is all good and yet who is knowingly the origin of people who inevitably come to tragic destinies, either of annihilation or of eternal torment? How is it possible to square a God who is supposedly all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good with outcomes which are not good for all? And this is where the transactional Arminian approach and the exclusive Calvinist approach both run into problems. And the interesting thing about both of these approaches is that for all of their differences, they each generate the same exact problem when it comes to defending the goodness of God. We'll start with the exclusive Calvinist approach because it's easier to see the problem here, because in this approach, God does not even sincerely desire the salvation of all. And that seems pretty cruel. God makes a world and doesn't even sincerely desire to save all the people in the world God makes. How is that all good? But that's the Calvinist point of view. So that's why a lot of Christians turn to what I call the transactional Arminian approach, because in this approach, God at least really wants all to be saved. It's just that in giving people free will, God introduces the possibility that all will not want to be saved in the end. And while that argument seems to make sense, I believe it ultimately runs into problems in regard to defending the goodness of God. Because even if people only come to bad ends because of their own delusional choices, an all-knowing God still incurs moral responsibility through knowing about their tragic destiny in advance and then failing to rescue them from it. To put it another way, God may give people free will, but if God knows from the beginning of creation that they will choose to doom themselves with their free will, then how can God finally not end up incurring some responsibility for it? After all, even though these people doom themselves supposedly freely, they nevertheless exist in a creation in which their doom was foreknown and therefore inescapable. The scholar who does the best job of arguing this point is David Bentley Hart. The way Hart argues it, since God is completely responsible for creation, God is also morally defined by its outcome. And that's because God knowing the end of creation from the beginning means that the outcome of creation therefore logically also becomes the final revelation of the character of God. And therefore, if there is any permanent evil in God's creation, then the first cause of that evil is God, who knew it would inevitably occur from the beginning, and that ends up inevitably subtracting from the goodness of God at the end. And this means, as David Bentley Hart succinctly ties it together, that the moral destiny of creation and the moral nature of God are inseparable. And the more I think about this argument from David Bentley Hart, the more it makes sense to me. Because if God knows all outcomes from the beginning, then God ordains in one way or another all of those outcomes. Even if we choose to commit evil, That evil is still a foreknown and therefore anticipated cost or consequence of creation. This makes God, who is the first cause of all that is, ultimately responsible for this evil, and this places the burden upon God to repair it as part of a larger redemptive plan for each person individually and for all persons corporately. If we accept that God knows the end from the beginning, as is stated in Isaiah 46.10, then God knows in advance about those who will be given grace, yet still not be saved. Nevertheless, God allows these ill-fated people to come into existence and then to proceed inevitably towards their ultimate doom. 
even though they are given the chance to make their own choices, they still exist in a creation in which their spiritual failure is foreknown and therefore inescapable. And this poses a substantial threat to the perfect goodness of God. How can God be all good and yet condemn people who God knows in advance will fail? How can God be perfectly good, yet set into motion a creation which produces personal destinies of certain disaster? These bad outcomes ultimately rebound back to God. As David Bentley Hart phrases it, One way or another, after all, all causes are logically reducible to their first cause. This is no more than a logical truism. And it does not matter whether one construes the relation between primary and secondary causality as one of total determinism or as one of utter indeterminacy. For in either case, all consequence are, either as actualities or merely as possibilities, contingent upon their primordial antecedent, apart from which they could not exist. In other words, as David Bentley Hart points out, it matters not whether God causes bad outcomes directly or indirectly. God still knowingly causes them one way or another. And how can God be considered to be thoroughly good if God creates, even indirectly, eternal outcomes which are not thoroughly good? And once again, it's hard to put all of this more forcefully than does David Bentley Hart. Here's how he argues it. Because we say God creates freely, we must believe his final judgment shall reveal him for who he is. So if all are not saved... If God creates souls, he knows to be destined to eternal misery. Is God evil? Well, why debate semantics? Maybe every analogy fails. What is not debatable is that if God does so create in himself, he cannot be good as such. We are presented by what has become the majority Christian tradition with three fundamental claims, any two of which might be true simultaneously, but never all three, that God freely created all things out of nothingness, that God is the good itself, and it is certain, or at least possible, that some rational creatures will endure eternal loss of God. And this, I have to say, is the final moral meaning I find in the doctrine of creatio ex nihilo. At least, if we truly believe that our language about God's goodness and the theological grammar to which it belongs are not empty, that the God of eternal retribution and pure sovereignty proclaimed by so much of the Christian tradition is not, and cannot possibly be, the God of self-outpouring love revealed in Christ. If God is the good creator of all, he is the savior of all, without fail, who brings to himself all he has made. If he is not the savior of all, the kingdom is only a dream, and creation something considerably worse than a nightmare. But again, it is not so. God saw that it was good, and in the ages, we shall see it too. The reason Hart's argument is so challenging is because it is rooted in the utter goodness of God. And I would add, it is this very utter goodness of God which is at stake in any Christian tradition which asks us to believe in a God who is good, while at the same time ascribing to this same God outcomes which are anything but good. Because if God is the author of things which are not good in the ultimate sense, then how can God be considered to be good in the ultimate sense? And I think the same problem extends to hopeful inclusivism, as much as I respect that position. Even though hopeful inclusivism is hopeful, even confidently expectant that all will be saved, it still allows for the possibility, no matter how small, that all will not be saved. And as David Bentley Hart once again points out well, the same challenge to God's goodness arises even when it is, quote, at least possible that some rational creatures will endure eternal loss of God. As Hart notes, 
If God puts us in a situation in which our ultimate loss is even possible, then God is answerable for this, even if none are finally lost. Here's another quote from Hart, where he puts it even more sharply. But let us say God created simply on the chance that humanity might sin, and that a certain number of incorrigibly wicked souls might plunge themselves into Tartarus forever. This still means that, morally, he has purchased the revelation of his power in creation by the same horrendous price, even if, in the end, no one at all happens to be damned. At this point, it's probably not hard to guess that I would recommend that anyone interested in all of these ideas should take the time to investigate David Bentley Hart's book, That All Shall Be Saved. But be advised, Dr. Hart thinks it's a good idea for his books to challenge readers' knowledge of vocabulary as well as their familiarity with theological terms. And so, with appropriate credit to David Bentley Hart, I have come to the conclusion that possible threats to God's goodness arise even on the chance of God's creation resulting in some type of irreparable harm. And that's why I have come to the conclusion that in order to completely protect the goodness of God, it's necessary to embrace a convinced and unreserved Christian universalism in which the final goodness of God is tied directly to the final well-being of all. This strong form of Christian universalism does not allow anything to possibly subtract from God's goodness. Every evil which is allowed is eventually turned back towards the good. The goodness of God, which reigned in the beginning, completely reigns in the end. And in that end, grace saves all. Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.